Hello and welcome to Primary Care Today. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Paul Dagramji. He's an attending physician, Collegeville Family Practice, and Medical Director of Health Services at Ursinus College. Dr. Dagramji is an expert in many topics. He's a primary care physician, but today we're going to be talking about depression, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the primary care doctor, the health care provider, should do when seeing someone with depression. So first of all, Paul, I want to welcome you to the program. My pleasure to be here, Brian. It's great to have you. And I guess my first question would be, you know, you know, you're moving along through your day and all of a sudden somebody comes in who's battling depression and they're dealing with it. What is the first way you recognize it in your patients? Well, the funny thing is that the obvious ones are easy. The ones that come and say, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I know it, my spouse thinks it, and I'm here to get medication. Those are the easy ones. But unfortunately, Brian, quite often they don't come in that way. They come in with other problems, other conditions, and you have to sort of uh, be on the lookout for it. They may come in with more pain, more somatic complaints. They may come in anxious, with difficulty sleeping. Uh, maybe they're coming in saying that they're having trouble concentrating, they're having trouble remembering. Or worse yet, they'll come in saying, look, my wife wants me to get a physical because she thinks there's something wrong with me and she's not really sure what. You know, you mentioned the fact they do present in other ways. And, you know, one of the things I've often said when we talk about the electronic medical record is it's good and bad because Mm -hmm. you're over there typing on the computer, you're entering data. But a lot of what I did was, you know, surveying the room and noticing that mom seems to be, you know, you're examining the child, but mom seems to be really down. And all of a sudden you find out she's overwhelmed because the three kids are at home, she's not getting that much support, and she's dealing with other issues. You pick up a lot from these nonverbal cues that you might miss in an office where Mm -hmm. you're kind of rushing through entering data. Well said. Well, you know, it's been a challenge. Uh, we've had electronic records, uh, Brian, in our office for about five years now. And boy, have I gotten good at typing. <laughs> uh, as well as uh, being able to type and look at the person at the same time and also limit how much typing that I do. I'll just get a little bit of the history uh, and type it, and then I'll put the computer completely aside, unless I'll have to absolutely refer something to it. Um, that way, I have a reminder in the EMR as to what I want to then go back and type and add to the uh, document. Uh, plus, also, uh, you know, I have just the right information that I need. But most importantly, I think Brian hit on something very important. If we're going to really identify these patients with with depression, we really got to be on the lookout for them. Their body language, their mannerisms, uh, their voice inflections, their eye contact—all these things are critical when somebody comes in with, let's say, an atypical depression, where, like I said, they're somaticizing with some physical symptoms, uh, or maybe they have a lot of comorbid conditions, and you're always kind of worried that, you know, when is this guy going to really start to get upset emotionally from all the things wrong with them? Well, you know, it's interesting, too. You have a lot of directions to go in our conversation, and one is the fact that you are uh, medical director of health services at Ursinus College, and you also are assistant medical director for health services for a high school, the Hill School in Pottstown. So you clearly are in a situation where you see our young people, teenagers and and young adults. They seem like they're a group that's at very high risk for depression and maybe even self-medicating with alcohol and other drugs. Brian, it is a very largely growing problem. Now, I'm no longer at the Hill School as of recently, but I'm still at our sinus college as our medical director. And what I can tell you is uh, it's been a dilemma. Uh, we have now three full-time counselors where when I first started, there was only one half-time one. And we are overwhelmed. Um, there are too many kids 
with too many psychiatric and psychological problems to begin with. And secondly, a lot of these kids are making it into the college level. And when they do make it into the college level, their stresses and strains seem to be much higher, Brian, than when we went to college. Whether it is the social media, the electronics that they have, it's difficult to put your finger on. A lot of conjectures are out there. But clearly, there are many more kids, uh, the prevalence is much higher than it used to be with psychiatric illnesses. They're much greater. Their demand is much more. And there is also one other thing, Brian. These kids seem to be pretty amenable to seeking out attention when, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, if they had a depressive or psychiatric illness, they might not have sought uh, attention for it. That's a positive, I would think, that they're actually going out and seeking your help, though. No question about that. The only thing is we have to be uh, uh, capable of offering them that attention, and that's where the, uh, uh, the critical aspects come in. How much should a college offer uh, the students as far as behavioral health? How much should they then go on their own? This is a dilemma that every college has across the country, uh, again, because of the rising demands from the psychiatric and psychological illnesses uh, that, that are afflicting college students when they come in. I'm hitting you with a lot of problems, a lot of concerns I'd have as a primary care physician. Another one is, okay, you're in your office, and whether you are an employed physician, whether you're in your own practice, whether you're grinding out in a small town, urban setting, you are now being put in a situation where you have to see more and more patients in rapid succession just to more or less break even. With that dilemma... And with the fact that, you know, you might be able to look at somebody's otitis media, make a diagnosis, and make it a relatively quick visit, you can't rush someone with depression. So how do you deal with it in the middle of the day short of, sadly, ignoring it and pretending it's not there when you, you know, use your nonverbal cues or your skills or your experience as a clinician to notice that this person is depressed and it's going to take some time? Yeah, you know, Brian, after 27 years of doing this, I think I'm getting a couple of bits of that right. (laughs) One of them is knowing that they're out there and they are going to come in. I mean, uh, 10% of primary care is depression. I mean, that's a lot of people coming in. If I see 100 patients a week, 10 of them are going to be depression. So you have to know that they're out there. Secondly, you have to have strategic scheduling. In my schedule, for example, uh, I tell my girls on a one-hour basis to schedule two acute visits, two recheck visits, one complete physical visit, and then one other in between. So hopefully in an hour setting, you'll have a couple of them that will go quickly, an otitis media, uh, and maybe the complete physical won't take as long, and hopefully a depressive patient who comes in, I'll have more time for them. But clearly at times when a patient comes in, they have depressive symptoms and they are depressed. They really have major depressive disorder. They need the time that they need. You have to give them the time that they need. These are people that are generally very uh, uh, fragile. Uh, Oftentimes they're not really sure whether they should be there or not. Uh, They're looking for answers. They're already uh, probably gone through many different thoughts in their head as to what they should do and have tried different things. Uh, and these are very fragile people. So you have to give them the time um, during the course of the day. And there is one other thing. Once you kind of establish a diagnosis, at least prematurely, and you tell the patient you can help them, give them a sense of positivity that, that absolutely there's things that you can do to make them feel better, you bring them in very soon after that, maybe the next day, maybe the next week. I have a, a great habit of saying, you know what, I really want to talk to you about this further, and I would love to see you and your spouse together. Can you come back tomorrow or later this week? And between now and then, I'd like you to do this, that, and whatever. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Dr. Paul Dagramji. Dr. Dagramji and I are talking about depression. Clearly, though, he is a man who has a number of areas of interest. 
Uh, in addition for working with the college population he does and having his practice, he is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians, a member of the National Headache Foundation and Chronic Fatigue and Immune Dysfunction Syndrome Association. And when I see the words chronic fatigue, immune dysfunction, and depression, they yeah. do also seem to be linked in many ways. A lot of these people might come in with multifactorial issues. Absolutely. You know, Brian, uh, one of the things that we see very, very often is a patient coming in and saying, I'm tired all the time. And how many times as clinicians do we sort of in the, in the back of our heads, we roll our eyes and say, oh, no, the person is tired all the time. And we have to think about that. And we have to approach them uh, in a very methodical way. A lot of these patients may end up having chronic fatigue. A lot of them may end up having fibromyalgia. But many, many of them end up having depressive symptoms. Don't, don't forget about sleep disorders. You know, you know, Brian, one of my passions is, in fact, sleep disorders and identifying them and treating them as well. Uh, and oftentimes, by the way, depression can present uh, with sleep disorders. In fact, about 40-50% of patients' first-time onset depression, their first symptom is, in fact, a sleep problem, typically insomnia. Um, so we have to look out for the patients that are tired. We have to look out for the patients who have fibromyalgia and other kinds of vague symptoms that have to do with they just don't feel very well and start to ask the questions that go right to depression. And, Brian, those two questions have been very well clarified, which, which are the two screening questions. In the last two weeks or so, how often have you been bothered by feelings of being hopeless, sad, or melancholy? Uh, and the second question being, in the last two weeks or so, how long have you been feeling like you don't want to do anything, you have no ambition, no motivation, or you're not really enjoying things? And those are the critical questions that we have to ask. All these people coming in with tiredness, fatigue, feeling run down and tired that may possibly have depression. So you really do have some cues out there and things that can help you. Where do you turn, or where did you turn, or especially early in your training, for assistance in trying to get better at recognizing many of these things? Do you have any uh, mm -hmm. books, texts, articles, things like that that you recommend? Yeah, you know, Brian, it's so prevalent that it's like anything in, in primary care. If it comes to your office often enough, you really want to know very well how to manage that particular condition. And depression is very, very often. Uh, fortunately, American Family Physician, our journal, oftentimes has articles in there. You can go online, and I love to refer to American Family Physician and their journal articles on depression. Um, I love going to also some of our textbooks in, in medicine. Uh, I also like going to Medscape, uh, and uh, uh, I also like going to uh, some of the websites um, that are from CME companies like Primary Care Network and Primed. They have some very, very good insights into how to approach depression. They tend to be up-to-date. Oh, and by the way, up-to-date is also a pretty good one. So I'll refer to all these different ones to get a general impression of sorts. Uh, but again, live presentations that are given all around the country, CME presentations, I love going to them because they tend to be up-to-date. And a large number of them, obviously, to do a little pitch for the station where we're being heard, ReachMD, ReachMD.com is a website where you have an opportunity to go on and also get some, not only these interviews, but presentations and things and have an opportunity to hear what's going on. And I think that's it. Sometimes we're drowning in information, but at the same time, you now have the ability to find specifically what you need. And I do want to say the American Academy of Family Physicians, their journal is an excellent journal for overviews. I have to review, obviously, New England Journal, JAMA, all these different ones in my work in broadcasting. But I will tell you, the American Family Physician breaks things down with the questions that we in primary care really want to know and get the answers. No question, no question. Like I said, uh, Brian, it's fantastic because you have a search engine where you can go and 
look up any of the different topics. Right, and we only have a couple minutes left. That's one of the things I probably would try to take over the station if I could and just talk all day. But we have <laughs> we have about 15 minutes in the, in the program, and I want to ask you, I've directed a lot of the questions. Are there areas that we didn't touch that you think would be important to you that you would like to focus on while we have time? Yes, I think the one thing that's really critical for all primary care providers, Brian, is to be very proficient at knowing how to diagnose depression. And sticking specifically to the DSM classification that we have right now, and the uh, uh, the PHQ-9, uh, I hope the audience can actually go and look these up, uh, the PHQ-9 specifically saying that the first two questions that you should ask are, again, the, the two that I referred to earlier, and then start asking questions about sleep patterns, weight gain, tiredness, um, and uh, inability or, or lack of ability to concentrate and focus, um, suicidal thoughts, uh, feelings of hopelessness and self-worth, um, and, and lack of energy. All these things have to be questioned. And if you use a PHQ-9, it can not only give you a good idea as to uh, whether the person is depressed or not, but the degree of depression, which may even prompt you on how aggressively um, you should uh, be approaching the patient. That's the first thing, which is correct identification. The second thing would be, don't forget the patient that has bipolar affective disorder. Look out for those that are presenting earlier in life, as I said, college student level, who say, I've been depressed for three, four years or so often on, and it's a very stormy past. Look out for the possibility of the bipolar affective. And the third and last thing I'll, I'll ask my audience to make sure that they know of is the medications. Know your medications and how to prescribe them. Know that the, the uh, SSRIs may work a little bit better for younger females as opposed to SNRIs. Uh, and, and, and know, again, that in certain decades of life, certain medications have to be given at higher versus lower amounts. Side effects are also very important to know. And finally, as far as medication, augmentation. Such a great thing that we have these days where patients, uh, where we want them to reach remission, the remission rates are only about 50% these days in antidepressants. Augmenting them can get us to get the remission a lot better. In the last minute I have with you, what about the role of counseling? Um, do you bring people either in for your own counseling or refer them to psychiatrists, psychologists to have that role as well? Counseling is, is, it has been shown uh, to definitely be an adjunct to uh, prescription medications. I mean, I, I see my patients who have depression early on very frequently. In the first month, I may see them two or three times. But they're not for counseling, but for medication management and to see how they're progressing. But counseling can be extremely effective in these patients as an adjunct. If I can, and in any situation, I will try to have a patient go for weekly counseling. And But then, Brian, there's also that other caveat, which is finding the right counselor, finding the right talk therapist. That can also be a challenge. Dr. Paul, Dr. Ramsey, I want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you spending your time. You provide a lot of insight for us for our day-to-day -day work. It's my pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You've been listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. You can hear more at ReachMD.com. Until next time, take care.